Last episode, we talked about the defeated motion to cut police funding in Toronto by 10%. It was largely a symbolic gesture. It would have meant about $107 million out of a $1.2 billion budget. Advocates for defunding the police pointed out that it didn't really reflect what advocates were calling for. Specifically, a total overhaul of law enforcement. Shut it down and build it back up so that it doesn't reinforce a system of violent racist colonialism. Still, even the symbolic gesture failed. It didn't really have a chance. The votes broke down along familiar ideological lines, with 16 against and only 8 in favor. Big, system-altering ideas don't flourish at council. Every problem is addressed in increments. There are frequent announcements about how seriously the city takes issues of systemic racism, poverty, road deaths, or what have you. But the actions to address them are often pretty bloodless. Two years ago, Premier Doug Ford slashed the number of council seats in Toronto in the middle of a municipal election. We've covered that pretty extensively. If you missed it, it was, in my opinion, one of the most heinous political moves I think I've seen in my lifetime. And while it didn't save any money or streamline government services or council meetings, it did manage to derail a lot of campaigns. A lot of younger, more diverse candidates had their council hopes sabotaged by the Ford government and... When the votes were tallied, the new council, while smaller, looked much the same and all too familiar. When the city faces a big, soul-searching moment, as it did with the police vote, I often think how things might have played out differently if the election two years ago wasn't tampered with. With a Global News Ipsos poll showing strong support for the defund movement among millennial and Gen Z generations, I wonder what difference some fresh faces might have made. We live in a time that demands all governments and all municipalities take a hard look at themselves and not only search their souls, but, finding it lacking, take real action. Make real changes. Some governments are. I don't know if ours is equal to that task. If it has the will or the energy. Maybe things would have been different if Toronto had a real election. Two years ago, that option was taken away from us. And we can only wonder. This is Spacing Radio. Welcome back to the Moss Park Closet. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we talk to Edmonton City Councilor Andrew Knack about how that city responded to calls to defund the police. And photographer Vic Pawa tells us about Spacing's new book, Remnants of Mid-Century Toronto. But first, Natasha Henry is the president of the Ontario Black History Society. August 1st marks an important date in Black Canadian history. It's Emancipation Day, and Natasha tells us why it's important to recognize it. Stand by. I thought I'd begin just by asking for for listeners, uh, you're the president of the Ontario Black History Society, so I thought we could start by just talking about the kind of work that the society does. The Ontario Black History Society uh, was established in 1978, and our mandate is to preserve uh, and disseminate Black history 
in a range of forms through our programs, through our events, through the development of resources, working on the development of exhibits, and as well as ensuring that there are supports through these various um, mediums that I mentioned for teachers and students to learn and teach about Black history. And we continue to advocate for the integration of Black historical experiences in the curriculum. Recently, you wrote a piece for Spacing Magazine online documenting the history of slavery in Canada. And uh, I think you, you speak of the reasons that there was need for the society and, and trying to get certain information into curriculums in Canada. I think still a lot of people are unaware that Canada does have a history of slavery. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, it is still not common historical knowledge that African people and Indigenous people were enslaved during the colonization of what we now call Canada for over 200 years. And the article that you are speaking of really was just a summary of my PhD dissertation research on the history of the enslavement of African people in early Ontario. And as it relates to, you know, why this is still the case, that this is not common knowledge, uh, you know, as an educator, the curriculum does play a role in that because the topic or the historical reality of enslavement hasn't been included in the curriculum and only in 2013 was included as a suggested topic. And so in learning about our colonial past, this topic remains an option. So there's that piece. And then, you know, we look at the dominant narrative of, of Canadian history. Again, we're more versed in the history of Canada being a safe haven for freedom seekers from the United States and not so much our own history of enslavement and even the fact that enslaved Africans here in Canada were fleeing to the northern U.S. for their own freedom. And so there's, you know, there are various ways throughout the production of the historical narrative where this silencing takes place whether it's historians who are encountering archival documents in their research and are choosing not to include these historical facts of enslavement that they encounter uh, when they are researching and writing about people or places in Canadian history, you know, then when you get that larger interpretation of, again, what is it that we are choosing to remember and to mark whether through plaques or through programs at historical sites. So all of these things kind of culminate to continue this lack of information around that history and enslavement. And that's something that I'm aiming to, to change and to help contribute to that conversation in my research. Right. And I have to imagine if you take something like the topic of slavery in Canada and make it optional for teachers to discuss with their students, I, I can't imagine a lot of people, a lot of educators choose to tackle that subject with especially with kids is it because it is uncomfortable to have those conversations even among adults so is is the solution to to make it mandatory absolutely the historical realities of enslavement should be part of the curriculum but it needs to be part of a broader conversation of our history of colonization and imperialism and we still have some ways to go in terms of really presenting 
that complicated history to our students through the curriculum. And so I think, you know, in, in broadening this, this understanding of colonization and understanding how this was a, a global endeavor of um, European empires and that the enslavement of African and indigenous peoples was very much part of that. And Canada is right is complicit as part of those practices that that will def- definitely help. It will help to produce better informed Canadians. And, you know, when we talk about public and political leaders today, kind of having a dispute or disagreeing with the fact that systemic racism exists, this lack of information, this lack of historical knowledge contributes to that to that point where people are not willing to or not aware of how systemic racism plays a role. And it has, the, you know, is rooted in historical realities. And towards the the purpose of raising that cultural awareness in Canada, we're approaching a, a very important date uh, coming up that we don't really discuss in Canada. In the States, uh, people do recognize Emancipation Day or Juneteenth, but we have our own kind of Emancipation Day in Canada that uh, there's a push to have it sort of nationally recognized. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, we definitely have our own history of marking the abolition of enslavement as a British colony in 1833 legislation was passed by the British Parliament to abolish slavery in most of the colonies. And that legislation took effect on August 1st, 1834, which is called August 1st or Emancipation Day. And here in Canada, we have our history of marking that occasion from the very first day that the legislation took effect. And uh, in my research on the history of enslavement and Emancipation Day, there would have been a handful of enslaved Africans who would have been freed by this legislation. By this time, slavery was gradually being abolished over a a couple of or a few generations. And so out of this, this day, the passage of this legislation, you know, this celebration um, evolved and the day was marked with church services, speeches, um, recognizing and acknowledging the history of African people on the continent and the history in, in North America and the Caribbean. Um, it grew to, you know, to include a range of festive <laughs> components such as, you know, dinners and dances, feasts and family gatherings, you know, picnics at different places. Uh, This year, Owen Sound is commemorating Emancipation Day for 158 consecutive commemoration. So we have a very long history of uh, Emancipation Day. And there has been a move initiated by Senator Wanda Thomas-Bernard from a few years ago to have Emancipation Day recognized nationally and uh, with the change in the with the change of the federal government, uh, a bill has been passed by uh, MP Jawari, uh, who has put forth a, a private member's bill to continue to um, advocate for the national commemoration of uh, Emancipation Day. And through this initiative, it really is to touch on several things. It, it's about acknowledging 
the day, yes, but it is also very much about developing a deeper awareness across the country of our history of enslavement, of our history of historically rooted anti-Black racism, systemic discrimination that Black Canadians have experienced and continue to experience uh, as evidence. You see, you know, and more recently with, you know, what's been happening with the upsurge of the Black Lives Matter movement, all of these things are, are connected. So, you know, through this commemoration as well, it's speaking to the endorsement of several uh, levels of government in recognizing the UN International Decade for People of African Descent that had some target goals for countries who endorsed the decade, um, who signed on to really focus on an educational component as one element, and as well to, to focus on putting through policies and legislation to really address these injustices and to help affect change. Again, coming out of a 2017 UN um, report, uh, out of a working group that came to Canada to assess the, the conditions of Black life. And so, you know, by marking this occasion, it, it helps to touch on all of these things. We're recognizing the past, we're educating Canadians, but we're also recognizing that there's a lot that needs to be done in order to ensure that people of African descent here in Canada really do have a life that of unfettered freedom and racial and economic justice. And you mentioned the protests. Uh, we're, we're speaking at a time where the headline news is uh, that some protesters in Toronto were charged for defacing uh, the statues of John A. Macdonald, Egerton Ryerson, King Edward VII, all people who have a very haunting history of anti-Black racism, uh, anti-Indigenous racism, and, and colonial violence. Egerton Ryerson being sort of the architect of the residential school system, which hurt so many people. And it, it always sparks this debate about, well, if if we don't have these statues or these street names, or even if they're named after very problematic people, then we're going to lose touch of our history. But you know, when I talk to you, it sounds like there are always aspects of our history that we just don't really talk about and that never even made it into the textbooks and they'd never get a plaque. So, Right. And, you know, we have to think about what were the reasons for commemorating these particular individuals. Uh, you know, that's one thing. You know, you're looking at um, celebrating these people. This That's essentially what you know these monuments do they're not necessarily about accurate history per se um and so even when you know when we look at the the pushback which is not new it's just it continues now to be in the public sphere even more so because of what's happening mm -hmm. that you know are we listening to the people who object to these representations and you know are we then reevaluating what it is that we want to convey as Canadians or, you know, local citizens, um, Ontarians, for example, through the monuments and the markers that we erect. Uh, and these things are always up for debate. And, and again, the fact that these monuments are problematic has been pointed out for a long time, mm -hmm. as you'd mentioned with John A. McDonald and, you know, his anti-Indigenous history. You look at, you know, Egerton Rice, and as you mentioned, similar as well. And he was also at the helm of the school system when racially segregated schools were introduced. 
and legislation was introduced in order to deny Black children the right to attend common schools because there was such objection by, by white citizens in different locales. So, you know, when people look at these markers of history, I put in, in air quotes, they convey different messages to different people. And so we have to hopefully come to a place where we can say, you know, we have to listen to what people are saying in terms of their objections, um, which are, are, are valid. Absolutely. And, you know, what is it that we want to convey moving forward about what it is that we value and what messages that we want to right, to communicate to people who are in these spaces where these monuments are? And these things are always up for discussion and always change throughout history. These are not static things. And so I'm happy to see the conversation and I'm looking forward for space to be made for other people other groups, diverse groups, local, uh, provincially, federally being recognized in public spaces. And if people want to check out the work of the Ontario Black History Society or support them in any way, uh, how can they uh, check them out? Yes, you can reach us on our website, Ontario Black History Society. We're also on Facebook under our name, Ontario Black History Society. And we are on Twitter at OB history. And uh, we have an Emancipation Day event coming up Thursday, July the 31st at 4 p.m. So please check out our website and social media for more information. There's also going to be a great panel that we are running jointly with the Owen Sound Emancipation Day Festival, which will be this Thursday at 6 p.m. So look forward to participating in some engaging conversations and celebrations as well as a lot of uh, activism as it relates to moving our agenda forward. Okay, well, Natasha, I want to thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Yes, thank you for having me. Have a great day. For more on Emancipation Day, read Natasha's latest spacing contribution, Apology, Truth, and Reparations. The Overdue Reckoning with Canada's Slave Past on Spacing.ca. Next up, Andrew Knack is a city councillor for Edmonton's Ward 1. Over the years, he's moved motions addressing the police force, its budget, and practices like carding and street checks. Now, in response to global calls to defund police forces and address systemic racism in law enforcement, Councillor Knack, with support of Mayor Don Iveson and others, was able to pass a motion to cut a projected increase in the police budget. Councillor, uh, Edmonton recently passed uh, a motion to reduce increases to the police budget over the next two years by the tune of $11 million. This was your motion, so I was hoping you could explain uh, how you arrived at this motion. Absolutely. So as with many motions, especially one of this size that was many pages long, it was a collaborative effort. It was a combination of, of input from a variety of members of council. So while I was the one that ultimately moved the motion, it, it truly was a, a council effort in many ways. So the original motion before had uh, had been altered was actually to do a, a larger change to the budget, would have been a freeze to the budget for 2021. But based off conversations and feedback from other members of council, the decision was ultimately to shift, uh, as you mentioned, $11 million out of their budget over two years and putting it to other community safety and well-being initiatives. 
that still leaves our our uh, police service with an increase in in 2021, and that's uh, you know a point of frustration for some uh, folks. Mm-hmm. But it's it's I think a, a good first step. You mentioned uh, putting the the money that you would save to community safety and well being. Uh, can you tell me a bit about the task force that's being uh, put forward? Absolutely. So so this to me is probably the most important part of of this motion. Because as we heard through the public hearing process, there were many concerns raised by members of the public, but you got the sense, at least I did through correspondence from other individuals and uh, I think even with some members of council, around a hesitancy to do too much too quickly without having all of the details in front of them. So the idea behind the task force is to have a body that will come in on a temporary basis, probably about six months, and what their role will be, it's, it's going to be community-led. They're going to hear from experts, academics, pull in research, talk to the public, and they will create a series of recommendations, not just for policing, but actually community safety and well-being. That's why we've entitled, called them the Community Safety and Well-Being Task Force. And they'll provide, again, not just recommendations as to actions we should be taking, but what the associated budget changes should be. So the potential change to the budget could be substantially more or it could be the same or it could be something entirely different, but it will be based off the work that this group does. And and the reason we needed to have a community led is there's, there's a gap in trust right now with a number of institutions. And that's not just policing that includes us as city council and, and the city of Edmonton as an administration. So uh, many public members were hesitant to support any type of additional work if it was going to be led by those parties where there's that lack of trust. So by putting this into the hands of the community, I think we're going to see some bold and transformative recommendations that will uh, be supported and implemented going forward. So what's the rough timeline of the task force? I believe a, a report is coming to council next month uh, and then hoping to get it off and running in 2021. Is that about the timeline? Even earlier. So the first report in August is going to include the terms of reference for mm-hmm. this task force. Within probably a month uh, after we approve that, we'll have the membership put in place. So starting this fall, so probably late September, they'll be able to start working on this. And the intent is to have the final recommendations in front of council within the first quarter of 2021 and to have interim budgetary recommendations when we debate our budget at year end 2020. This move uh, on the part of Edmonton Council came after basically worldwide reaction to uh, deaths at the hands of police forces uh, in North America, in Canada, uh, especially people who were in mental health crisis, who were often uh, police arrived uh, ostensibly for a wellness check, and the people whose well-being they were checking on wound up dead. And uh, I think the anger all over Canada is is understandable, but uh, I was wondering what you were hearing from your constituents in Edmonton's Ward 1. Well, you know, this this was the issue, and I've been on council now for almost seven years, and I've never had more correspondence about any issue than this. And uh, and I talked about it. I'd written a blog post on this because I wanted to share with everyone I'd been hearing from. And one of the things I noted in that post was that a lot of the correspondence I received, e- even though they were form letters, which some people choose to dismiss, but I don't think that's a valid, that you shouldn't dismiss form letters. But 
the people who sent those letters, the names of those individuals are names I haven't seen in seven years on council. Mm-hmm. I, I get fairly used to at this point seeing the same sort of names and callers about any variety of issues. And here was a topic that so many Edmontonians that I've never met at community events or community meetings because they're involved in different areas and have never taken the time to call an email because they're busy with life. They spoke up and very loudly about this. And yes, there were there were a smaller number of people who expressed concerns about any changes to policing. But the vast majority of people I was hearing from wanted to see substantial change. I heard over a thousand from over a thousand people. And what's fascinating is that even some of the EPS members I spoke with, mm-hmm. you know, you speak with them and in many cases, they also don't want to be responding to mental health calls. Right. I had one person say directly to me that some members feel really comfortable responding to those calls because they have some additional training beyond what police trains them on. And then you have other members who do not want to be there at all. They would much rather be focusing on serious crimes. But because we've made police as uh, we've given them the requirement to do everything, they're having to respond to these calls when they're not the best suited to do that. There are people who are trained to do this who would be better served and we'd be better serving the individuals to have that. So so I actually think there's a lot of agreement about the need to change, but there was a lot of fear from some people because they heard the term defund the police. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there was a great appreciation for what that actually meant. And you've had motions in the past to uh, look at uh, maybe cutting some of the police budget as well. Uh, you've had motions uh, to try and address the practice of carding or, or street checks in Edmonton, which a, a lot of advocates uh, all over Canada have been calling to abolish wherever that practice uh, is is in operation. Can, can you tell me a bit about that? Yes. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, starting on the budget side of things, that, that's been a concern of mine for, for some time because, and most notably when we were debating our four-year operating budget, which runs from 2019 to 2022, I was looking out at the end of that budget and to see what the final dollar amount was for policing. And I started comparing it to the city of Calgary because it's hard to care, compare to cities in other provinces because each area has different responsibilities. Mm-hmm. But Calgary is a very good comparator. And the city of Edmonton was actually going to have a larger policing budget than the city of Calgary, a city with 30% more people at the end of 2022. And that to me feels very unsustainable. There's one of one of our members of council, uh, Councillor Scott McKean, I think, had brought up a really good point one day when he stated that the way we are handling policing feels a lot like how the province here in Alberta deals with healthcare, which is that you've got these runaway budgets and yet nobody's investing in prevention, which we know over time will save you money mm-hmm. and produce far better results. But if we look at it solely from a financial perspective, we know investing in prevention, it takes a little bit up front, but you're going to see better results at the end. And so that's why it's, to me, something that we've needed to work on for some time. You know, I've occasionally been accused of being anti-police when I bring that up. And any of the motions I've done over the years weren't even to decrease the funding. It was just to not increase the funding quite as much and invest in areas that we have seen have had a proven impact on reducing calls for service. We have a, a group called the 24-7 Crisis Diversion Team in Edmonton that has been responds to mental health calls, and they've helped reduce calls for policing. We have seen excellent permanent supportive housing where 
we have some of the hardest to house individuals who now that they have that 24-7 permanent care have been able to reduce substantially their interactions with police and also our healthcare system. So we know that the evidence is there. We just need to actually put the money into it. And so I think this will help move us in that direction. And then when you look at some of the other issues like carding, there's been a conversation around school resource officers here in the in the city as well. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that we have to be listening to the voices that spoke up around what's been happening. And we have to be listening to the Black, Indigenous, and people of color who have expressed their concerns over the years about these mechanisms, treating them unfairly and acting in many cases potentially as they contribute to systemic racism. So I'm glad to see in this motion, it looks like we're going to be able to move that even further. Um, I think the big question it is, is going to be, is it going to be substantial enough to address a lot of the concerns that we heard from from the approximately 150 people that we heard at our public hearing? And when it comes to police oversight and reform, uh, I think municipalities in Canada often feel kind of like their hands are tied by the relevant provincial act around policing. Yes. Uh, I've seen that the, the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association called for uh, wide police reform in 2018 that sort of went unaddressed. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, to your mind, what is the relation that uh, urban Alberta municipalities have with their police forces in terms of the the Alberta Police Act? Well, I think the challenge is the act is so outdated, and and thankfully in Alberta it is going to be changed now. The review is underway, but that took a protest of 15,000 people in the city of Edmonton to generate that action. And now the key is, will the reforms in the Police Act ensure that there is proper oversight to give comfort to everyone, not just those who currently feel comfortable. Again, I, I, I have talked about this in, during our discussions that, you know, I, I haven't felt unsafe around police. And that's likely because I'm almost a middle-aged uh, white person. Right. And I haven't had any negative interactions, but I've heard far too many stories now about people who haven't been able to have those same interactions that I have. And then when they try to address it, they feel that it's not being heard in, a, in the right way. That runs from how the investigations are done, because many of the investigations are done internally, which to our police services credit, they don't want to be the ones investigating themselves. They've asked for that to change. Right. Another change to the Police Act, and, and again, that everyone seems united on, is some of those lower priority calls where there's not an immediate threat. Why should we have are highly trained police officers who are focused on stopping serious crime as the first response. Why can't we have someone else? Well, in fact, our police act prevents a lot of that work from occurring. So there are changes that we need to make. And it does seem like there's general alignment between the police service, the police association that represents all the members, the city and the public that we need to do a massive overhaul. Again, the question is, what will the final changes look like? And I actually think this is another area where the task force can provide some clear recommendations to help us ensure people have trust in the new process going forward. And I, I'm sure for, from your perspective, the, the motion to reduce by 11 million is uh, a step in a direction. Uh, I, I'm sure that that's not uh, the, the end of the fight, but uh what lessons do you take from this uh, for Edmonton and for other Canadian municipalities, especially large urban ones, that are, are wrestling with similar issues? This process that we went through in Edmonton 
felt like it used the term fight and it did to a degree feel like a little bit of a fight. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's because there, again, are members of the public who have not had anything close to the lived experiences that black indigenous and people of color have experienced. And so when they heard any change to the budget, their mind immediately went to the fear of the unknown. And so I can't fault someone for that, but we have to move beyond the immediate reaction of, of fear of changing the status quo. And so I hope that what will happen in the future and how we can address this going forward is this task force. Again, this is community led. Yes, there will likely be one representative from our police service on that task force as well. But we've seen a few different times in the city of Edmonton where we brought together a panel of Edmontonians to try to solve complex problems. They've come out of those panels, even when you have people from across the spectrum of beliefs, they've come out with recommendations that have substantially moved the city forward. The the most recent one was one related to climate change. You know, we had climate skeptics who didn't necessarily believe in the science of climate change participate on the panel. And yet at the end still supported moving forward with climate resilience work and, and, and a major energy transition strategy for the city. So I hope that other cities look at something like that and recognize that that might be the way to help bring everyone forward. And I know for people who want to see immediate change, that's incredibly frustrating to hear. <laughs> And why? Because I heard from those folks who were upset about what this does. But that's why we're coming in with a clear terms of reference, why we're giving them a very short timeline to bring forward these recommendations. And while that might not be the immediate reaction a lot of people see, I think the end result, the recommendations are going to be something that the vast majority of the public buys into because it's going to be a thoughtfully done. And even if the budget recommendations are significant, I think it's going to be hard pressed for people to argue against them when you have this group being able to put forward clear recommendations with good evidence, examining best practices and doing what you would expect anyone to do when they're making significant policy decisions. Well, I look forward to uh, what they come up with. And uh, I want to thank you, Councillor Nack, for uh, taking the time. As a little something lighter to finish up, Spacing has a new book out. Remnants of Mid-Century Toronto is a love letter to an architectural style that is sometimes divisive. The book is full of contributions by Spacing regulars and respected architects. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but Vic Pawa, who took all the photos for the book, makes the case for a much maligned design style. Vic, I first wanted to ask you, uh, you're a photographer in Toronto, you do a lot of work with spacing and and elsewhere. Uh, How did you get involved in in this particular project, the mid-century book? Uh, Well, I've been um, working with uh, Matthew Blackett at Spacing for quite a while. I think over the last 10 years, I've contributed numerous times to the magazine. Mm -hmm. And through the magazine and through, I guess, Matthew's passion, I kind of, you know, discovered modernism over the years. For me, it was a response to the boring contemporary architecture that defines a lot of what's being built today. Mm-hmm. But anyways, we've been talking about it for a while. We both love the idea. He approached me because I have this, I have a huge database of photos that I've been taking since 2013 or so. You know, modernism just spoke to me. The, 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 the lines, the curves, the zigzags, the sculptural elements, uh, they're all really wonderful. So it's 
you know, it's impossible to pass up a chance to work on something like this. Speaking to that that style, for someone who's kind of a layman in architecture, uh, if you're walking around the city looking for some of these gems, uh, what are you looking for? Well, there's a large variety of them, um, but I'll I'll speak to more of what's in the book. I mean, modernism has always been a rational uh, building style, I guess, that developed in Germany at the beginning of the last century. But it's space age. It's very sculptural. Um, your canopies can be curved. Uh, there's zigzag shapes to it. It's basically a playful form of modern architecture. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of variety in it. I think in some ways it's one of the most varying forms of architecture. It also covers a big amount of stuff. So, But a lot of other things are you'll notice is it's they're quite colorful, glazed colored bricks. Um, for the concrete, you can see different aggregate blends, which is like the size of the little pieces of stones that they used in the concrete, but it it usually sticks out on the landscape. It, it looks different from everything else in that it's colorful. It's not as bland as contemporary architecture, and it's not as ornate as the old stuff. And it kind of belongs in the era between the 50s and the 70s. The title of the book is Remnants of Mid-Century Toronto, and, and, and the book mentions that you didn't want to just do like a best of. So what does it mean when you talk about remnants of mid-century in Toronto? Uh, To me, remnants means the stuff that's around every day that you may not notice. It's such a part of the landscape that you don't really see it, but it's part of your everyday life. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a photographer, I I cannot tell you, I've walked down streets a dozen times and I still see new things every time. I think this kind of architecture, it's kind of, I think it's forgotten in a way. Like I know it's everywhere, but apart from the, you know, the very popular pieces like City Hall, for example. Mm -hmm. I I don't think people have a lot of awareness for it. It's an architecture that's almost 50 to 70 years old. So I think we need to start talking about its importance. And uh, do you have any favorites that really stand out for you while you were working on this project or just in your years of documenting the city? Uh, Davisville Public School is, uh, I would say, is my favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, Was my favorite. It's up at Davisville and Young near the subway station. It was a school designed by two architects that worked for the Toronto Board of Education back in the 50s. I think Frederick Etherington and Peter Pennington. Peter Pennington was the design architect. Uh, So he made this building. There are four other or five other of his buildings in the city that I think that we should save. But Davisville had uh, hyperbolic roofs, like shaped like saddles. If you look at it from a satellite view, there were fine lines in concentric squares on these uh, hyperbolic rooftops. Uh, the windows are playful. They were in different shapes and orientations, uh, framed in concrete, and they used a very handsome brown brick. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say that it was a school that thought about children and made school a little bit more playful for them. Right. Like it, it looks like a building that a child would, want, would be fascinated by. Right. It, was, uh, it was demolished because it doesn't meet their current standards. Uh, and I, I don't know if this is true for sure, but this, the concrete roof was leaking at one point. So I think a lot of things get demolished because of neglect. Yeah. And uh, I mean, obviously, education is, uh, is an expensive thing and needs lots of funding. So I, I can't speak for the TDSB, but it's really sad that they didn't try to repurpose it or something. Yeah. I think with some imagination, maybe we could have saved it or a portion of it. It's hard to describe. It's just so different. But if you want an idea of what this architect does, go to Lord Lansdowne School at College in Spadina. 
for uh, the City of Adult Learning Center at Broadview and Danforth mm-hmm. on the southwest corner. So you can still see the style that he used, and I think you'd have an accurate idea of what Davisville might have been. I mean, it it hurts to hear that your favorite example of this is no longer in existence. Uh, and I have to imagine that uh, part of the reason behind this book is is to start talking about the value of this kind of architecture. I, I mean, when we talk about heritage in, in Toronto, I think on most people's mind are, you know, kind of Victorian style. But uh, as, as things grow older, uh, what people kind of see as uh, anachronistic or kind of corny, we end up uh, growing to appreciate. Like the, the people who built these mid-century buildings despise the, the Victorian style in, in some ways. And so now, uh, instead of just knocking it down and repeating the sins of the past, uh, you know, how important is it to you that we, we really look uh, towards preserving this, this style? Personally, I think it's of utmost importance. I mean, it, it is a vast historical archive of what art- architecture was in the 50s and the 70s. If you look at the language of the architecture, you can see the progress of these styles over time or perhaps the cycling of them. Mm-hmm. You know, it, a lot of people think it's very rational, straightforward, you know, square, straight lines. It's, it's a lot more than that. And if you look at some of the churches that were designed in that era, I think they speak for themselves. So if, if someone looks at this book, I'm hoping they're going to go, wow, I didn't know that these buildings existed or that they could be so beautiful. And it's the way we used to do things, and it's the way we may come back to doing some things, and of course, with better technology. So if we have an understanding of it, I, I think that can only be a good thing. And Vic, if, if people want to check out your work, uh, where, where can they go? Um, before I do that, can I just uh, mention a few people that are really doing a good job, I think, in, in Toronto with modernism? Yeah, absolutely. I think I want to definitely say thank you to Matthew Blackett and Spacing, because They've put out issues on modernism, and their magazine is priceless. Uh, That's the first one. I would also say that the Architectural Conservancy of Toronto, they have a database called Teal Built. They're doing a great job bringing attention to these buildings, and they don't show preferences for styles. ERA architects have always been champions of this. And um, I guess uh, another shout-out to a gentleman named Robert Moffat. He, uh, He has a wonderful modern blog online, and I learned a lot from him. So with people like this, I think, you know, we have a chance. Right. As far as how to reach me, uh, you can reach me at vikpawa.com, V-I-K. He is in Peter, A-H-W-A.com. If you look under that name on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I, I have a daily photo blog there so people can follow along and ask questions. And I try to make it an educational thing, mostly about architecture. So those are good ways to reach me. All right. Well, uh, Vic, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. And that is the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you like this podcast, please give us a rating or subscribe. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at track 82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca, 
or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, which is now open to all mask-wearing customers. In the meantime, take a moment this Emancipation Day. Cheers. Cheers.